0: chapter 1. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to be finishing up Luke chapter 1. Finally, this is actually our fourth study in Luke 1, which isn't necessarily my fault because it's 80 verses long. So, but uh, continuing our study here through the book of Luke. We started Luke just a few weeks ago, and uh, what a wonderful thing it is. I think it's important every now and then to jump back and hit one of the Gospels to really get an account of the life of Jesus. You've got to remember as a Christian, if we're called to imitate Christ then we need to study the life of Christ to figure out how do we live our lives like Christ. So, real quick review, if you haven't been with us for the first uh, studies here in Luke, Luke chapter 1. First week we're introduced to Elizabeth and Zacharias. Elizabeth and Zacharias, the Bible says, were well advanced in their years, past the point of being able to have kids. They hadn't had any kids. An angel of the Lord appears miraculously to Zacharias and says, you will have a baby and he'll be John the Baptist. Zacharias, being the great man of God he was, didn't believe him. And so therefore, Zacharias, the God says, because you did not believe me, you will not be able to speak to the birth of your son. So that was the first study. Second study, we're introduced to Mary, and we all know about the virgin birth of Christ. And we compared the two of them. We talked about how here Zacharias, this priest, this man of God, but yet when push came to shove, his faith faltered. Not to pick on him, but he didn't believe what God could do. And here's Mary, Mary who was maybe 14, 15, 16 years old at the time, who was then called to give birth to the Messiah. And we talked about how that probably wasn't exactly the calling she was looking for. In fact, the Bible uses the word she was troubled. She was agitated at that, but yet in faith she believed, and she was honored and blessed by that. Then last week, Mary and Elizabeth meet their relatives, and so therefore they came together, and we talked about the joy of them coming together, which brings us to this point today. We're at the birth of John the Baptist here. So John the Baptist is born this week, next week Christ is born, and then we really get into Luke chapter 3, the actual public ministry of John and also of Christ. You have to remember John and Jesus, little Bible, Bible trivia here, would have been cousins to each other. So with that being said, let's talk about the birth of John the Baptist. Verse 57 of Luke chapter 1, it says, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by his name of his father Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father, what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. Now, let's just talk about this for a little bit. Pretty straightforward stuff here. There's a couple interesting points that I found in this I just want to share. First one, verse 58. She has the baby, and what does everybody do verse 58? They rejoice with her. That's a pretty simple, straightforward thing. When we studied Romans you know, a few months ago, one of the verses we talked about was Romans 12, verse 15, where the Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We talk about how as Christians we have this responsibility that when you are rejoicing in the Lord, I want to rejoice in the Lord with you. When you are weeping because of a sorrowful situation in your life, I want to go ahead and weep with you. But you realize how hard that is to do? That's really actually a very difficult thing to do because what happens is when you're rejoicing in the Lord, I may have had the worst day I've ever had in my life. So when you come and you're rejoicing because of what God did, I need to put all my own personal thoughts and feelings off to the side and say, you know what? My life does not matter at this point because my friend, my brother and sister in Christ is rejoicing and I want to rejoice with them. That's hard to do. Because normally what happens in the fleshly response is somebody comes and shares great news and then somebody makes a comment like, well, I'm glad you're having a good day because my life is miserable. That's not rejoicing with those who rejoice. That's being selfish. Or the other way around. I may have had the best day ever. My day may be going wonderfully. You had some life-crushing news so what happens is i need to put my joy off to the side and say you know what because you're sorrowful i'm going to be sorrowful with you that's actually something very difficult to do because by human nature we're pretty selfish people we really are and if you don't believe that human nature is selfish go take a room of toddlers and put one toy in the middle of that room you will not see one single toddler say no you play with it first we are a selfish group of people, and so therefore, if I'm having a bad day, by golly, I want everybody to have a bad day with me. Do you know anybody like that? Those are difficult. If you're, if I'm having a good day, well, I want everybody to be happy too. And I'll make comments like, well, don't bring my day down just because you're having a bad day. We're a very selfish group of people. So when we see a verse like this where it says they rejoice with her, that's actually easier said than done. Turn, if you will, with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to build on this for a second. Because part of the reason we're a body, we're a fellowship, we're a church, is to be able to build these relationships with each other, to be able to rejoice when one rejoices and weep when one weeps. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, please. You know, on Wednesday nights, we only have an hour service for the Wednesday night service. And, you know, by the time you do worship and you got the teaching and we do announcements. Now, when we do Wednesday night church, for those that don't come, we do an open time of um, prayer requests or praises. Sometimes that goes on for a while. Now, we believe it's really important to do that because we believe as a body it's important to have that time for you to say, hey, I told my co-worker we'd pray for him, so I'm going to lift that up. Or, you know what, my cousin's going through a difficult time. I want to lift that up. Or, look what God did. The prayer line's been really active this week out here at church, and a lot of the times the prayer request going through the prayer line, you may not know that person but we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. You say, you know what, somebody from church cared enough about that person to say I'm going to pray for him." then I'm going to pray for him. That's the way the body is supposed to work. Now what happens is, in our McDonald's fast food society, is we really don't build relationships. We don't really become a body. We show up on Sunday... 10 to 11.30, or maybe serve here and there, and we have these little casual relationships with each other. We don't really have that brother and sister in Christ relationship. I'll tell you right now, I am closer to some guys and gals out here at church than I am to my own flesh and blood, because there is that closeness in the Lord and serving together and living together. It's really easy just to come, show up, go home. We're thankful that you come. But the point is we also want to be a body that's there for each other. That's why we have a fellowship time. The fellowship time is... I'm not trying to break a secret here. It's for you to be able to fellowship. I remember when Jim Craker used to be the pastor, he'd get up and he'd say, you have to shake hands with three people. That was his requirement. So I always shook hands with my wife and like either my father-in-law or my mother-in-law that was sitting near us. Those are my three people. I met them every week. So the point is you're supposed to get out and know people, be the body here. Look at first Corinthians 12. Let's go ahead and start here in verse, uh, let's start in verse 23. It says in those members of the body which we think to be less honorable on these we bestow greater honor and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty but our presentable parts have no need but God composed the body having given great honor to that part which lacks it we're a body here verse 25 that there should be no schism or division in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another and if one member suffers all the members suffer with it or if one member is honored then all the members rejoice with it that's the goal a follow-through on that is very difficult to do because what happens is we have a tendency to put walls up to say, well, if I don't really know people personally, I can't get hurt by them. And so therefore, you don't have those close relationships the way God originally intended it. He has designed us to be a social body that's there for each other, cares for each other, weeps with each other, rejoices with each other. And so when I see this passage here, of how they rejoice with her, amen to that. So there's going to be times in your life you don't want to rejoice with people, but you say, you know what? I'm going to put my needs to the side, and I will rejoice with them. There's going to be times in life where you don't want to be sorrowful with people. Lord, not today. Don't I, I don't want to be brought down today. It's a good day, but yet we want to re- weep with people. Look at the example of Christ. Whatever Christ was going through, he would meet that person at that area and live the life with them. Think about this. Jesus is hanging on the cross, suffering physically, mentally, and spiritually. And what does Jesus do on the cross? He leads somebody to salvation. Jesus is in a time and place, physically, mentally, and spiritually on the cross. We just talked about this Wednesday. He was in anguish and pain and spiritually, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But yet he still cares enough to put the needs of the dying thief beside him before anything and lead that person into eternal life. What a godly example for us. Lord, whatever I'm facing, I want to put everybody else before me. I want to rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, next thing here I found kind of interesting about this, as you see in real quick in verse 59, they're good Jews, get circumcised on the eighth day, just like the law says according to Leviticus 12. Now, there's a little word in verse 60 that's kind of fascinating. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. They wanted to name him Zacharias. That's just the way you did it. That's what the boy's name was. That's what dad's name was. That's what you do. Now, Dad can't talk right now, remember? He met the angel. He didn't believe the angel. God says, you're not mute. So Elizabeth has to do all the talking. So they said, well, we're going to name this kid Zacharias. And she says, look at verse 60 one more time. A little word there. begins with an N. No. Now, this is a really simple point. You know how hard it is to say no sometimes? I'm really being serious. It is really difficult sometimes to say no. And what happens when you say no? Well, verse 61, well, they said to her, there's no one among your relatives. See, you say no... And other people won't let it go. Let us just think for a second here. Why can she say no? She can say no because she knows God has called her to this miraculous birth, and God has called her to name her child John. She knows that God's will and God's calling in her life is to name this child John, so she's going to put her foot down and say no. If you know the Lord has led you, if you know the Lord has called you, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you are allowed to say no because you know where God's leading you. Think about your life real quick. I'll think about mine. How many times have you not said no to something that you really knew you should have said no to, and it just starts snowballing? And next thing you know, you got yourself in so deep you can't back up to get out of it. How many times have you said yes to something that you didn't really stop and seek the Lord in prayer over it and next thing you know you're into this thing, man Lord I can tell this is not where you wanted me to be I can tell this is not where you called me to be but yet I've made these commitments, I've made these promises and now we're in trouble there is a vitalness in seeking the Lord on a regular basis to say what is God's will for my life, what is his calling for my life so that way I know when to say no and I know when to say yes. Now you may be thinking how am I supposed to know what the questions are going to be That's the catch. I don't know what's going to happen. When I get done with this message, I'm going to say goodbye to everybody. I'll go to my office. I'll pick up my phone. I have no idea what's on that phone. I have no idea what emails, texts, phone calls. I don't know. Anytime my phone rings, I don't know. Is it someone saying, hey, guess what? Results came back, no cancer. Or is it someone saying, hey, guess what? The Results came back, cancer. I don't know. So I spend my mornings in prayer saying, I don't know what the day is going to be. Since I don't know what the day is going to be, Lord, you give me wisdom and guidance in all ways and all directions because I don't know what's coming. And so, therefore, when these situations pop up, I'm already prayed up and saying, Lord, give me wisdom for whatever it is. She knew where the Lord had called her. She knew what God said to do, called his name John. So, therefore, she can emphatically say the answer is no. There's nothing wrong with saying no when you know you're in God's will, when you know that's what the Lord wants. They push a little bit 61 they come back in verse 62. Now they go to Zacharias and say, what do you want us to do? And I find 62 interesting. They made signs to his father what he would have him called. Now we know the guy's mute. He can't talk. That's a God thing that happened there. Some people believe when you look at verse 62 that he can't hear also. Because why else would they be making signs to him? I mean, if he could hear, they would just say, come on, Zacharias, nod your head, yes or no here. Do you want him to be called Zacharias? Shake your head no. You want him to be called John? Shake your head yes. Maybe he couldn't hear. Now, real quick review. We hit this in the introduction. Remember what happened. He's a priest. He's serving in the temple. The angel appears at Zacharias. You're going to have a promised child, a miracle baby. You're past the point of having kids, and you shall call his name John. And Zacharias' big response is he didn't believe him. Now, we talked about in the first lesson how when we don't have faith, it silences our witness. It mutes us. Now, I find this fascinating here because when we're not walking in God's will and faith, We can't talk, we can't hear, we can't do anything. Well, look what faith does in verse 63, though. He says, his name is John. They all marveled. Verse 64, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, what kind of child would this be? And the hand of the Lord was with them. It's amazing what faith does when it opens a door when you believe. Now, I'm not making some type of all-encompassing statement. I don't mean it that way whatsoever. In this instance... God told him, you will have a son, you will call his name John. Zacharias was disobedient the first time. The second time when he was given an opportunity, he was obedient, and God honored that obedience. I look at this passage, and I think, aren't you thankful that God gives a second chance? I mean, seriously, how many of us would make it past months of age if God said it's a one and done? I am so thankful that God is a God of second chances, third chances, fourth, fill in the blank and how many times have you dropped the ball? Boy, I've dropped the ball a lot. I remember distinctly there was a time years ago, wife and I were living in McClure at the time we first got married, and there were some people that were out about, and I really felt like the Lord said you need to go up and talk to them about the Lord. And, I mean, it was one of those strong feelings that you just knew you should d- do it. So the answer to the story is I didn't do it. Disobedient. I remember going home just kicking myself. I'm a failure. You know, what an opportunity. You know, these people are going to go to hell, and it's all my fault. You know, all this other type of stuff. And I remember going to the Lord saying, Lord, I'm sorry, give me another opportunity. Months later, same two guys, God opened the door, and I got a chance to go share with them. I'm so thankful that he's a God of second chances. Because Zacharias, he messed up the first time. there's, There's no doubt about that. That's what happened. The Lord gave him another opportunity. Can you turn with me to John 21, please? Let's talk about this for a second. Because we all have moments of where we don't do what we're supposed to do. We have moments in our marriage where God says, show unconditional love to your spouse, and we don't. Then we walk away saying, what a horrible husband and father I am. We all have moments at work where somebody's doing something inappropriate, and we have a moment to take a stand, to take a stand in truth and righteousness, and we don't. And we walk away saying, oh, my goodness, why didn't I say something? Aren't you thankful that God gives another opportunity? Look here at John 21. Now, background to John 21. We all know what happened here. This is Jesus after he died on the cross. But if you remember correctly, on his Last Supper, he went and told his disciples, You guys are all going to leave me and deny me. Peter stood up and said, Not me. Everybody else will leave and deny you, but I'm not going to leave and deny you. I won't do it. Well, we know what happened. Peter did what? He denied him and left him. Peter's crushed. Peter's crushed. He failed. So what happens? John 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going to go with you also. Now this is real quick background. We've talked about this before. You've heard this. Peter gave up. Peter gave up. He was the one that the Lord said, upon this rock I'll build my church. He says, Peter, I'm going to use you. I'm giving you the keys. Peter, I'm going to use you. Peter messed up. He denied Christ. He was a failure. So what's Peter's great response? Verse 3, I'm going fishing. Now this is not just, hey guys, I have nothing to do today. you want to go fishing with me? This is, I'm giving up my calling as a disciple, and I'm going back to my job of fishing. That's what Peter was. He was a fisherman. He is giving up the ministry and going back Fishing. Now, how many of us here have ever just wanted to give up? I'm I'm never going to serve again. It just went horrible. I'm never going to teach again. It just, it just went horrible. Never going to help out again. I'm never going to talk to that person again. That's the last time I try to be nice to that person. We give up. We go back to fishing. So what happens is, in verse three, when he goes back to fishing, they said to him, "We're going with you also." See, here's the thing: when we give up on the Lord, that's a domino effect. When you give up on God, that influences somebody else to give up on God too. Now you may be thinking here, I have nobody that is listening to me. Don't worry about that. I don't care who you are. The Bible says you have a sphere of influence that influences people spiritually. That sphere of influence may be one person, it may be 100 people, it may be 1,000 people. I don't know. But when you go deeper in your walk with the Lord you're encouraging other people to go deeper in their walk with the Lord. When you give up and become stagnant, you're encouraging other people to become stagnant. When Peter said, I'm going fishing and giving up, they said, we're going to do the exact same thing too. What happens when you give up on the Lord? Look at the end of verse 3. They went out, immediately got into their boat, and that night they caught nothing. That's the result of giving up on God. Is nothing. Meaningless, purposeless, empty life. Nothing. It's amazing what happens when we give up. When we give up, work all of a sudden becomes empty rather than realizing it's an opportunity to spread the gospel. When we give up, marriage all of a sudden becomes empty rather than saying, hey, let's try to work at this. When we give up, ministry becomes pointless because what's the point anymore rather than seeing it as a chance to impact generations for Christ. When you give up, the result is you get nothing. But well, what happens, verse 4, why don't you know it? This is when Jesus shows up. Jesus has an uncanny ability of showing up just at the right time. Now, sometimes in my life, I think he showed up too early. And it's like, Lord, I'm not ready for you yet. But generally speaking, most of the time when we get upset about Christ, it's because he shows up too late. We ever had a moment? Maybe you're in a moment right now of, okay, Lord, where are you? Why aren't you here? He will always show up at the right moment, at the right time, at the right place. He knows. So he shows up. Verse 5, If you guys caught anything? They say, nope. So verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Look at the difference between verse 6 and verse 3. Verse 3, you give up on Christ, nothing. Verse 6, you're obedient to Christ. Look at the multitude. See, this is what happens. This is why it's so vital. I always tell people all the time in counseling, just hang in there. Just, just, just be obedient to the word and be obedient to the Lord because there is... A fruit coming, there's something coming, just hang in there. And what happens is we reach verse 3 of, I'm I'm done, I give up, I quit. Oh, man, when you quit, you miss out. But the main point about this is restoration. Look at verse 7. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, who's John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. I love that verse. Peter is now restored with Christ. Just be honest. Have have you ever just been a failure spiritually? You're a failure of a spouse. You're a failure as a parent. You're a failure as a friend, as a witness, as a Christian. You're just an absolute, utter failure. So you say, I'm going back to fishing. I give up. I quit. Jesus shows up at the right time. We're obedient to him in verse 7. Next thing you know, you're plunging into the sea because you can't wait to go meet him again. Zacharias got a second chance. Amen to that. Peter got another chance. Amen to that. I've lost count on how many second chances I've had. But God is a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And he just keeps on giving us another chance again and again and again. What a beautiful thing that is. I'm so thankful that the story of John... The Baptist, Elizabeth and Zacharias, does not end with Zacharias being mute the rest of his life. God's saying, Zacharias, I gave you one chance. You messed it up. I'm not letting you speak the rest of your life. Ah, oh, grace and mercy. Aren't you glad with Peter? Peter, you said you wouldn't deny me. You denied me. You're done. You're out. Get out of here. No, grace, forgiveness. What a beautiful thing that is. Jump back now, if you will, to Luke chapter 1. When God does amazing things, people are on awe. So uh, now it says in verse 64... Zacharias can speak he's praising God that spreads around in verses 65 and 66 it's spreading through the whole thing That's what's supposed to happen when God does something amazing that it has nothing to do with us He gets all the glory he gets all the attention and it's an opportunity to use that as a way to say look what the Lord does God did something amazing here let everybody talk about it. Zacharias is so overwhelmed with what God did. He has this great song of praise and prophecy from verses 67 through 80. Let's go ahead and read verses 67 through 80, and then we'll come back and break it down verse by verse. It says in verse 67, Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, it have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, which with the dayspring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit, was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Verse 80 is a fascinating verse, and we're going to get to that in a couple weeks, when you really study out the adult life of John the Baptist. If you remember, he lives in the wilderness, uh, wears camel hair, and eats locusts and honey. Quite the funky guy, to say the least. And we'll get to him in just a couple of weeks. But let's talk about this. Zacharias, so overwhelmed with what God done, filled with the Spirit, with the birth of John. John, John's name means Jehovah is a gracious giver. Elizabeth and Zacharias couldn't have kids. They now have a son by the name of John. Zacharias is so overwhelmed with this. So what's the first thing he does? Verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Redeemed, that word means to pay a ransom. We were held hostage to sin, And Christ paid the ransom to set us free. Note, last week, when we talked about the Song of Mary, her first point was that God was her Savior. First point that Zacharias says is that God's my Savior. He's redeemed me. That is the bottom line of everything we do in life, is that Christ died on the cross for your sins. I don't care what you're facing today. I don't care what baggage you brought in. I don't care how difficult your week, your day, your life has been. You always have hope because Jesus Christ is your Savior. Always. And that is the first point of everything. Whenever you feel discouragement and depression of the world trying to get the best of you, you have to go back to the foundation of your life is that Jesus is your Savior and he has redeemed you from your sins. That has given you hope. That's given you eternity. That is what gets you through. That's number one. After that, go to verse 69. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's a Bible talk to say that He's your strength. So if you understand the fact that He's your Savior, next thing you understand that He's your strength. Whatever you're facing right now in life, He's going to be able to get you through. Verse 70. This is fulfilled prophecy. As He spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets who have been since the world began. Do you realize the first prophecy given in the Bible in Genesis 3 is the prophecy of Jesus coming to be our Savior? Now, When Luke was written, or when this happened with John and Zacharias, I should say, 4,000 years had gone by, and that prophecy had not yet been fulfilled. So when Zacharias is saying this in verse 70, that prophecy he's talking about is 4,000 years old. In our McDonald's fast food society, we get really ticked when God doesn't answer a prayer in four minutes. Then it's really bad when it's been four days. I remember distinctly one time talking to someone. They were really struggling with something. I told them, you need to go pray about it. I ran into them just a couple days later, prayed about it. Oh, I prayed about it. I said, well, how's it going? It's going horrible. I said, why? It's been two days and he hasn't answered yet. Listen, I get the same thing. Thought I just prayed about this five minutes ago. Why haven't you opened the door yet? This is four 1,000 years of waiting for fulfilled prophecy. 4,000 years. If you are sitting here this morning and you are struggling with Christ not showing up quick enough, he still hears, he still listens, and he answers in the right time. So he answered, verse 71, they're saved from their enemies. Verse 72, they gave them mercy. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. This is fulfilled prophecy. This is what Zacharias is saying here. I'm redeemed. I have God's strength. This is fulfilled prophecy. He's taking care of it. Now, application. What do we do with this information? Look at verse 74. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. After we accept the fact that we're saved, after we accept the fact that it's his strength and his mercy, what's the first thing that God wants us to do? Serve him. Did you you catch that in verse 74? The first thing he wants us to do is serve him. Wow. Now this is not a call then for the sign-up sheets. This is not the type of service we're talking about. This is a service in your heart and your attitude on a day-to-day-out basis. And how do you serve him, verse 75? In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. I heard a pastor say one time, and it really impacted me, he goes, as a bondservant, as a slave to Christ, and as soon as you wake up in the morning, your first thing is, Lord, what do you want me to do today? If you're like me, I got my little day planner I carry around, and I got sticky notes on it, and on sticky notes, I already got a list of people I need to contact this week. Okay. None of that stuff matters. What matters is, what does the Lord want me to do? And I've had these moments before. I said, okay, Lord, I, I I know what you're calling me to do, but Lord, i got a pretty big list i got to get done today. We are supposed to serve him first, verse 74. How are we supposed to serve him? Well, it's always great to serve him, and the idea of, well, I'll go serve in the back, I'll go serve at the garage sale giveaway, I'll go serve at, at VBS. Okay, that's wonderful. But sometimes he says, I want you to serve by loving your spouse, serve by loving your kids, serve by being a good worker, serve by loving your friends, serve by by being a man of prayer, serve by being a woman of His Word. There's so many different ways to serve. And so when you get up in the morning, maybe the way the Lord wants you to serve Him first is you're going to spend that time in prayer and in the Word. Maybe you're going to spend that time serving your family. It doesn't have to be just signing up at church. It's a heart and attitude of service. And how is it done, verse 75, once again? In holiness and righteousness. I sometimes serve hoping to get something in return. Lord, if I'm really nice to her, then she'll do this. Or Lord, if I go do this, then this will happen. That's not servanthood. That's cutting a deal. I just serve because the Lord said to do it, no matter what they say, how they respond, or what they think. I just serve. That's the goal. That's what we're supposed to do. Verse seventy-four. How else? What else are we supposed to do? Look at verse seventy-six. Did you catch this phrase here? You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare His ways. First thing we're supposed to do is verse seventy-four, serve. The second thing we're supposed to do, verse seventy-six, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, just ask yourself are you doing a good job preparing things for Christ? Are you doing a good job of saying, I am laying out preparing people to meet the Lord? And that may be by planting seeds, by watering them for the Lord. I don't know what it is. See, I used to think when I first got saved that the only way I was successful is if I personally led people to the Lord. Then I started realizing, you know what, sometimes I'm not called to lead them to the Lord. Sometimes I'm called just to plant seeds of Christ into their lives. They may not come to know Christ for months, years, decades down the road. Maybe I'm called just to water seeds that have already been planted by somebody else. Maybe I'm called to go ahead and just be the one to get to lead them to Christ. But you know what, if you ever have the joy of leading someone to Christ, you have to realize that there's been years of prayer of seeds and watering put into that person. Uh, it's always kind of tough when you're the one that's always just planting seeds and you never get to see the fruit. But our job in verse 76 is to prepare people to meet the Lord. Now just simply ask yourself, is that the way I look at my life? I have to be honest, sometimes I don't look at my life that way, and I bet you don't either. I mean, do you really get up tomorrow and saying, okay, Lord, who can I prepare to meet you today? You'd probably get up and say, oh, okay, I got to get going here. I got to get to work. I got to swing by the bank before I get there. On the way home, I got to swing by the gas station and do this. And then I got this going on tomorrow evening. The kids got a ball game here and I got to do this. Let's just be blunt. Verse 76, there's not many thoughts of our day of Lord, who can I prepare to meet you today? God help us to get that eternal perspective. If it's not ball games, it's not work and it's not the house. It's are people saved or not saved. Or are they going to heaven or hell? That's what matters. So once I prepare to meet them, Lord, how do I prepare them? Verse 77, I give them knowledge of salvation. That's why it's so vital to know your Bible, to know what it means to be saved and how to tell somebody to be saved. We've been talking a lot here lately. We put up the PowerPoint slide last week. That great phrase is to... To be able to spread the gospel, you must first know the gospel personally. So for me to have the knowledge of salvation, to tell people I first need to experience it. Because once I experience salvation, I want people to know it too. And I'm not trying to pick on other churches. I'm not trying to make a debate here because that stuff doesn't matter. But this is why we believe it's so important to do verse by verse, chapter by chapter, teaching through the Bible. It's because we believe verse 77, that is what gives you knowledge. Knowledge of salvation is to then say, now I'm going to go tell other people about it. As we've said numerous times, the purpose of church is not for you to come and feel good. I want you to feel good. Don't take that the wrong way, people. Don't leave yet. But the point is, we want you to come to learn and grow, have an opportunity of service and fellowship. But then as you learn and grow in your knowledge of the Lord, is then to leave and go tell people about the Lord. That's what matters more than anything. Put this all together, verse 74, he's called me to serve. Verse 76, he's told me to prepare the way of the Lord to to meet people. Verse 77, he's told me to know the knowledge of salvation, to tell people. And what knowledge of salvation is it? Verse 78, the mercy of God. Your translation may be different. Mine says day, spring, that has visited us. Yours may say morning light or rising sun, that has come to us. The light has come to us, why? Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness. There's something powerful about a dark room. Then you flip on a light something powerful about that What a neat picture of when we came to know Lord think back to before you got saved You remember how dark your life was I think about when you, when you met Christ when the light came on It's an amazing thing Isn't it it's an amazing thing when that light just comes on and there's something about a light in a dark room I was telling the 830 service. They've been working on power lines near our house And so the last couple of days they've had to shut the power off and so when they get ready, they come to you, knock on the door, and say, hey, we've got we to gotta kill the power to your house. So what we've been doing is we send the boys down to the basement when they get ready to kill the power. And Dawn gives them a couple flashlights. I just think it's the coolest thing in the world. You know, you're out there playing, and then all of a sudden the lights go out. It's complete dark. You flip on your flashlights. It's a fascinating thing. I'm an adult guy. I'm still fascinated by a flashlight in a dark room. I'm easily entertained. I just am. So, but the point is, something about that. Dark, light, that's what it's talking about here spiritually. We're walking in darkness. You, you live with people that walk in darkness. You work with people that walk in darkness. Your friends and family may be people that walk in darkness. Our goal, our job, is to prepare them to meet the light of Christ and point them towards Jesus. The only thing you get out of this message today is that. That's the only thing that matters in the whole scheme of eternity. Are people saved or not saved? And look at this. Who sit in darkness, verse 79. And look at the next one. In the shadow of death. Have you ever been around somebody in the shadow of death? Boy, I remember one of my favorite moments of the years I've been a pastor out here. It was years ago someone called me and asked me to go uh, to a nursing home and talk to somebody. And this this gal was literally on her deathbed. And we got a chance to talk to her. We got a chance to share Christ with her. Thank the Lord she got saved. And she died two three hours later. And you know what? It counted. She's in. She's in for all of eternity. That was somebody who was literally in the shadow of death. It was. And you see that even somebody a couple hours from their passing... Soul has the opportunity to know the light of Christ. Oh my goodness, what an amazing thing that is. You know, if, if you're here today and you're saved, don't ever take it for granted that the Lord saved you early in life, that you have all these years to serve Him and love Him. And you have the opportunity, as verse 74 says, serve, as verse 76 says, prepare, verse 79, to give light to a dark world. The first half of verse 79 is you know evangelical. Look at the second half of verse 79. to guide our feet into the way of peace. If you know anything, you walk through a dark room, it's a dangerous thing. You want some type of light to see what you're doing and to see what's going on. Jesus is the light, verse 79, that guides your feet into the way of peace. If you'd come ask me what I want in my life personally, other than seeing people saved, I just want peace. I mean, Don't you just reach a point in life where you just want peace? Just peace, Lord. I, I don't want any more of the hassles of life. I don't want any more of the physical problems of life. I don't want any more of just the anguish and pain of life. I just want peace. Well, the Bible says in verse 79, and one of the things that Christ does is he guides your feet into peace. I think of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. There's a peace in following the Lord. Now, let's just be honest. Look back into your life. The times that you got yourself into non-peaceful situations, were you really following what the Bible says is the right choice and pattern? I know for me, when I get myself into a situation in life where I don't have peace, nine times out of ten, it's because I've done something stupid. Because I'm not obeying what the Word says. It's because I'm not responding the way the Bible says. And so then I sit here and say, why don't I have peace? Because I'm not being obedient to the Lord. Obedience brings peace. Now note, obedience may not change the circumstances of your life, but it brings you peace in the middle of the storm. One of the toughest conversations I have to have with people is when they come into the office and they're, having, they're their life is a mess. They're just having a really rough time in life. And you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, as a the reason they're having a rough time in life is because they're not making biblical, godly choices. So when you sit there and you say, say, Listen, you don't have peace. Reaching you don't have peace is because you're not living your life according to God's standard. You can't have peace apart from the standard of God. You can't. That's one of the things that Christ does, is he gives us peace. So put this all together. Verse 74, let's serve him. Let's serve him in holiness and righteousness. Verse 76, let's prepare people to meet Christ. Verse 77, let's give them the knowledge of salvation. Verse 78, the light of Christ does what? Verse 79, brings people out of darkness and the shadow of death and guides our feet and how we're supposed to live our life. Let's put into practice verses 74 through 79 this week. Let's serve him. Let's prepare people to meet the Lord. Let's give the knowledge of salvation and let the light of Christ guide our lives and hopefully impact other people's lives. the worship team wants to come forward here for the final song, just want to end with that challenge in a good way. To find a way to